Howdy, and welcome to the show. Cooper's Code examines a legal issue so that we can all achieve the best results for our clients. Today, we have the privilege of sitting down with Cynthia McGuinn, who, for most in our world, needs no introduction. Her trial verdicts have set records in counties throughout California, and their impacts have changed the way businesses and medical professionals treat the people they're supposed to serve. Beyond her case handling, she has served as the American Board of Trial Advocates National President and Foundation President, along with many state and local leadership roles along the way. She has earned Trial Lawyer of the Year awards from numerous organizations, including the California American Board of Trial Advocates in 2022, as well as the Lifetime Achievement Award from the San Francisco Trial Lawyers Association. Importantly, she invests significant time teaching future lawyers how to be effective, ethical, and civil through masters in trial programs throughout the country. And most importantly to me, she saw some rough stone, me, and through 17 years of mentoring and partnership, along with another guest, Bill Veen, helped sculpt my career to follow in their paths to zealously advocate while maintaining high ethical standards. Sit back and enjoy as we explore how a child of depression-era parents emerged from Ohio to become the force that she is today. Welcome to the show, Cynthia. Hi. So taking it back to the beginning, you grew up in Ohio? I did. I was born in Akron, Ohio, rubber capital of the world. What was life like for you growing up, and how did that manifest in terms of you making decisions about moving outside of Ohio to eventually end up out here? Well, parts of growing up in the Midwest was terrific. You know, I was able to spend a lot of time outside. I could climb trees. I could go to the park by myself. There was a real sense of safety and community. So that was really terrific part of living there. What was challenging was the environment that I lived in. We did not have very much money. My dad was a mailman. My mom cleaned people's houses. And um, we didn't have a lot when we were younger. And there were family dynamic issues that were challenging. My mother was ill from a fairly early age, and her illness lasted a very long time. So that really dictated a lot of what my daily life was, was how my mother felt. And that was hard. But I went through the Catholic school system, and which had many advantages and a few very big disadvantages, and then attended Akron University and uh, went into teaching because I asked my dad, what should I do? And he said, be a teacher. They'll always pay a job for teachers. And so I became an educator and I taught developmentally disabled kids. That was what my degree was in and I enjoyed it. It was very hard work, but I liked it. So that's kind of where I was in Ohio, you know, came from a very large family and my mom had 15 brothers and sisters. My dad had eight They all married each other. It was an insane relationship to be at a family picnic because if you did anything wrong, you could slap by any number of aunts. It was kind of like that. And it was good and it was difficult because it became very insular and I think I wanted more. There are, I think, a few different careers that you had along the way before you became a trial lawyer. And some of them seem to have lent themselves to teaching and explaining in certain ways. How did you find being a teacher, and in particular a teacher for developmentally disabled children, factored into your ability going forward? Well, patience. (laughs) Absolutely, patience. And a recognition that people bring with them in their lives things that make them different. And you can't relate to everybody the same way. You have to relate to people at whatever level they're at, at whatever moment in time they're at, 
and recognize that it may change at any moment. So that lack of consistency, I think, helped me become a more flexible person. And it also gave me a lot of sense of gratitude, how lucky I was, how lucky the people around me were, even with my mom's illness, because there are certain things that you cannot change that you have to deal with. And these little kids were pretty amazing in that way. At a certain point, you found yourself departing Ohio. How did that come to pass? (laughs) Quickest chance I got. That's how that came to pass. I graduated from college. I married a boy who was uh, going to have a Navy career. His family came from the Navy, and he was going to have a Navy career. And I really didn't understand what that meant when I said yes, but it sounded really good because it meant I could leave Ohio and I could go someplace else. And so I traveled to a number of states while he was matriculating through his school. He ultimately became an officer on a nuclear submarine, which meant he was gone for about six months out of the year. So I was by myself a lot. But I lived in various places, and I ultimately ended up living in Hawaii. I lived in Georgia for a while, and I worked there, and then I lived in other places, and eventually I got to Hawaii. But in terms of jobs, wow, I've had a lot of jobs. There are certain ones that we've talked about over the years that stand out in my mind. I know you've been in sales. Yep. A variety of sales. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about those jobs? And for those who are listening, the understanding here being all of this is kind of coming back to how do we become individuals who can work to help jurors and decision makers understand the losses that the people we represent have suffered? Well, let's see. I'll give you two examples, because there's an awful lot, so I'll give you the two. One is, for a period of time, I sold mobile homes in Georgia, and I also sold cars in Georgia. The story I would tell would be the story about the mobile home first, and that is these mobile homes were not very fancy, but every one of them had a large, beautiful velour painting of a bull that hung on the wall, and... I thought it was tacky, and I thought that the job I had was something I'd have for a while and just get through it, make some money. But I realized when people came to look at these homes, in terms of what they could afford, these homes really meant something to them, and they were just delighted to have an opportunity to live in them. And that gave me an appreciation that what is quality for one is not necessarily quality for another, and that people have their dreams, and some dreams are bigger than others. And a lot of what I learned in that job is that people who didn't have very much money that wanted to do the best they could for their family were very proud to be able to accomplish even buying a mobile home. I think that made me a little less of a spoiled white girl. The other job was selling cars, and it was the era of hot pants. And so I would wear my hot pants and my little top, and I had long hair, and I was selling a car called a Mazda rotary engine. Now, you know me well, having practiced with me for so long. The idea of me selling anything mechanical is a joke, Uh, and I didn't know anything about the car. But I knew enough about sales to understand that you have to find out what people's objections are to a sale. And once you find out what their objection is, If you can overcome that objection, they will buy your product. That's all sales is, as far as I'm concerned. There's others that probably could make it a lot more complicated. But in its purest sense, it is somebody's here because they're curious about something, or they're forced to be, in the case of a jury. What are their objections going to be to what I want them to buy? 
And I don't mean that to demean what I do because I think what we do is very important. But when you think about it, you have to persuade them to see the story in from your perspective. And that's what I did. And I sold a lot of cars. And I can assure you, if somebody had ever asked me the mechanical parts of it, I wouldn't have been able to explain it. So I think that was part of what I learned in that job. I had a job as bartender, really interesting job in a men's club. So my people would come in in the afternoon and I met so many varieties of people in so many stages of real sadness and alcohol-induced happiness. And I learned a lot about human nature there. Those were probably the three jobs that had the biggest impact on me. I mean, I taught school in various places. I did odd jobs. I did work as a model for a fairly long time. What I would say I learned from that job is that you have to be willing to take the slings and arrows if you want to accomplish something. That's a harsh job to model because people are very critical of you. And you have to give the appearance of having confidence even when you're really feeling like you're being beaten up. You're in a group of people that are vying for a particular job and you're being talked about like you were part of a group of cattle. It's difficult. And of course, modeling is what generated my ability to go to my desire and my idea to go to law school and my ability to go to law school. Can you unpack that a little bit? Some of us might make some presumptions about the ability in terms of making money sufficient to be able to go to school. Is that fair? Sure. Yeah. It's not necessarily very easy to earn money in modeling. I was very lucky. I got a job. There was a product called Hawaiian Tropic Oil that was just coming out in the 70s. And I got a job as a model for them in their first sales production. And so I did very well with that. And I was able to bank money. I was able to bank a lot of money from all the liar's dice I played when I was uh, working at the bar. And I saved enough. The other thing that happened was I went on a call for a modeling job. I was 26 years old. It was for a fur. There was a company that was selling furs. And I heard some of the people talking in the group that had interviewed me after they thought I had left saying, she's too old. You know, we need to get younger people. And it wasn't devastating to me because I had heard such comments before, but she's too tall or she's not tall enough or she's too thin or she doesn't have the right look or whatever. But the one that what they said he was too old was kind of like somebody really taking a hammer and nailing it down and saying to me, you're not going to be able to do this very much longer. So what would you like to do? And I'd always wanted to go into medicine because I really love medicine, but I didn't want to be responsible for somebody's life. And I thought the next most interesting thing would be law. And so because I lived in Hawaii and I had a really nice little place, I just got the books and sat on the beach and studied for the LSAT and took it. That's what happened. That's how I started. You didn't go to law school in Hawaii, though? No, the likelihood of a woman haole, which means a white person, (laughs) in uh, Hawaii getting a job of any value there in the late 70s was non-existent. So I knew I had to come back to the United States. And the closest place to come back to was California. So that's what I did. You went to school in San Francisco? I did. I went to Golden Gate University. What made you select that school? It allowed me to work and go to school. And it wasn't as expensive as some of the other places that I had been accepted to go. I would have had to relocate to go down south. I wouldn't have been able to work to go to some of the other schools that I'd been accepted to. Golden Gate fit 
the bill for me. And I really wasn't worried at my age of, did I go to Yale? Did I go to Harvard? It didn't matter to me. I wanted to be a working lawyer. One of the things that is fascinating, interesting, inspirational about the work that we do is that it doesn't matter where you went to law school as a trial lawyer. What matters is your ability to do your work. And one of the commonalities I've seen among some of the more successful trial lawyers is there are certainly some who've gone to good schools. There are a lot who I would describe them as scrappy, perhaps a chip on their shoulder, a you might underestimate me. And a lot of them have GGU attached to their name. Yeah, I think Golden Gate was a very good school. I don't think there's anything about it that made it less than other schools. And in some ways, I think it was better because you had people that were going there for business and for other areas in education. And I have to say, I had the best tort professor ever, and I fell in love with torts. That's what happened. His name was Neil Levy. I still remember it. I don't know if he's around. If he is, a shout out to Neil. But I was lucky I had a teacher that inspired me. So I was very glad that I went to Golden Gate. Where did you find yourself working or working for yourself when you first came out of law school? Oh, that's a story. You know, I'd gone to school and in going to Golden Gate, I'd made some friends there. Not a lot, a few. And one of them was a man who was a, a buddy. And we both applied out of school to the same firm to work. And I won't say the name because I'm going to say bad things about it. So I will skip the name of the firm. But it was in the East Bay. And it was near where I lived at the time, which was Fremont. So I used to take the train in to go to school. And um, we both got a job offer. And we were so excited, and we went out to have a drink about it, and we're talking about it. And I found out in the course of our discussion that they had offered him $10,000 a year more wow. than they had offered me. So I thought, well, I'll just ask them. Maybe there's some reason why. And when I asked, they told me that, well, he was married, he had a family, and I wasn't. It just hit me like a brick that, you know what? You're never going to do well in a big firm. I didn't have any of the accoutrements that would get me in. I didn't have a named school. I didn't have a family member. My family didn't have a background in law. I wasn't even from California. So I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll just give it a shot myself. And so I decided to open my own business. And I found a place in Fremont. There was a woman who had an answering service company. And in the back of her offices, there was a little office. So I rented space from her and she agreed to answer my calls, and I agreed to do her collection work if she needed it. And I opened up my office there. And then I started doing work for Alameda County, and it basically was conflict work in criminal cases where there were multiple defendants, and the PD couldn't represent both. So they'd hire a private lawyer for the princely sum of $200 for the entire case. And um, that's what I did. I did a lot of criminal law. You don't do criminal law now? No. How did you find yourself taking on different types of cases, ultimately in the injury field? Well, in doing the criminal cases, I realized it really wasn't anything I ever wanted to do. I didn't want to spend my time interviewing people that had been arrested in prisons. It wasn't an environment that I wanted to be in. And I also realized it was out of my depth. That is a difficult job. The job of criminal law is a very difficult job one I didn't think I was very well suited for. So in the course of trying a case, I ran into a civil lawyer, also in the building, who was looking to rent space. And he said, well, you know, why don't you come over and you might be interested. And I was. 
and I rented space, and then I started doing rollover work for them when they had small things that needed to be done. And for about a year, I did everything that you could possibly do as a general practitioner. I did probate. I did divorce just once. That was never going to do that again. (laughs) I did real estate kind of claims, but in the sense they were like landlord-tenant issues. And somebody at one point came in with a small PI case, and I took it and ended up trying it and had a really good verdict and realized it was something I'd like to do. And then I started getting work from some of the people that I knew that I had known in the criminal world that that were lawyers, criminal lawyers, some of the judges I had appeared before in in criminal cases, referred cases to me, and then the, the people that I was subletting for did. And I just started doing them and loved it. I love the intersection of medicine and law. I think it's fascinating. You learn something new every time you do a case. You mentioned earlier that medicine was something that you were interested in as you were evaluating medicine and and law. Did you have any background in medicine? Did you have some focus in terms of learning the anatomy? How did you find yourself being able to master that piece of the work that we do? Well, A, I haven't mastered it. (laughs) And after 40 plus years, I don't think I ever will. Human body is fascinating. And the different things that can occur are, you can't name them all. You can't measure them all. I can't ever always know. But I had no background. I didn't have any family background in medicine. My mother's illness had an enormous impact on my practice and how I view being a lawyer and injury. But I just learned anatomy as it went along. At that time, there really wasn't an internet. You know, so I got all these books. I'd get books that they they wrote for kids, you know, How the Human Body Works, or 100 Most Important Things About Anatomy. I still have some of them. And I learned as I went along which was what was so great, because every case I had, I had to learn the anatomy for that particular injury. And I had to learn not just to prove my case, but what the case was going to look like from the other side, and how would they try to disprove it. So it was just a question of time that I did it. Over time, did your practice evolve into doing primarily personal injury and other civil litigation? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't even over time. As soon as I realized I liked the PI work, that's what I did. I knew I didn't want to do probate. I can tell you the one or two probate cases that I had, there's nothing that brings out the worst in people than fighting over money when somebody has died. It's a very sad situation. I didn't want to do it. I admire and respect those attorneys that do that kind of work because it's very difficult. And I can't tell you how much I admire people that do family law. Because that's, it's a human car wreck. It's really difficult work. The PI, I thought, gave me something where I could really enjoy myself and have fun and still help people. And, you know, every piece of information you learn becomes more part of who you are. It's nice for me to understand how the body works when I'm talking to somebody about an injury that they have, you know. So I like getting that knowledge. I'm a little bit of a knowledge junkie, probably. You also... uh at some point, did some employment work, too. I did. Was that something that also appealed to you in terms of the the civil litigation and the helping people side? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I like to say that I did employment law when, it, when employment law was good <laughs> because there's a lot of challenges in employment law now. But I really did it. Part of it is kind of a David Goliath thing. You know, I represented a lot of women, a lot of young women, that had really 
been so courageous to get into a male-dominated world at that time and try to get ahead and do well under very difficult circumstances. And it really made me happy to be a champion for them. It really made me feel good that I could protect them and I could get some justice for them so that they could feel like they could continue. I didn't want them to feel like they were beaten down and to give up, you know? Yeah. So I really liked it. But over time, I have to say, I enjoy the employment law. I occasionally will do something in that area. I just participated in a master's in trial program yesterday that was an employment case. And a shout out to everybody that was in that because we got a $12 million verdict on paper anyway for an employment case, and they're fun. But the injury cases, an individual's injury impacts every person who is in their orbit to one degree or another. And when somebody's injured, it's not just them that's injured. It's their children. It's their spouse. It's the people they work with. It's their friends. It's their community. All of those things and the idea of righting a wrong and helping somebody and maybe changing the way businesses do business so that they can do better and have less of the problems that I'm representing people for, those things all really resonated with me. Throughout this time that we're talking about, you have continued to be what people refer to as a solo practitioner? Yes and no. I was a solo practitioner for about mm, 10 years, maybe, eight And I had a case that was just making me crazy. It was a simple case. It was a car accident case, but I couldn't get a response from the defendants. And I actually asked my husband, what should I do? And he said, well, tell me about the case. I told him, and he said, let me see the photos. And I showed them. It was a bad injury. So it was a bad accident case. The crashes were bad. Your husband's also a trial lawyer. Yes, he is. He's retired now. Yeah. But I said, what should I do? And he said, oh, you know, you ought to call Bill Veen. He's a trial lawyer. He says, I think it's a case he might like, and maybe he'd partner with you on it. And I said, well, you know, how do I get his interest? He said, oh, take him to lunch and buy him a bottle of wine. And after the wine, show him the photos. So I did. And we ended up partnering on that case. And uh, he had office space available in San Francisco. I wanted to move from the East Bay. I came up there, and I rented space from him for a while. And he kept asking me, why don't you work with me? Why don't you work with me? And I didn't really want to. I didn't want... There's a certain comfort in working for yourself. You don't have to answer to anybody. You can be your own governor. And I'm a pretty disciplined person as it relates to my work. So I didn't need anybody telling me what I needed to do. But after a while, I think I'd probably rented space with from him for about five or six years, I agreed to come on and work with him with a caveat that I could do the work and I didn't have to answer to him. And true to his word, I never did. I worked with Bill for 20 years and really worked independently and enjoyed it immensely. And then after that time, there were some changes in his firm, and I really was wanting to do something a little bit different, and I was asked to become a partner of the firm that I am now, and that's Ruta, Feeder, Tijan, and McGuinn, me. One of the things that has happened over time in our field is with 98% of cases settling without going to trial, there are a lot of lawyers who don't have trial experience. And then there are a lot of lawyers who end up getting funneled those cases, meaning they are known for their jury selection skills. They're known for their trial work. And you are one of the few who have emerged over time in that regard. You know, it's hard to remember back that far. This is 40 plus years of practice. But I know one of the things I did is I took every opportunity to 
go and watch trials. I did a lot of that. And I watched people pick juries. And I watched juries being picked. I watched jurors responding to attorneys who were picking juries. And I learned a lot from that. I learned a lot about how people perceive being a juror without ever having been one. And I attended as many continuing legal education classes as I could. And if I was given the opportunity to speak, I spoke whenever I could. I didn't talk about it, but I had a speech impediment when I was young. And it was one that became very apparent when I was under stress. I would stutter. I didn't stutter all the time. I also had an aversion to speaking in front of a group, a big aversion, so much so that when I took public speaking in college and had my first assignment, I passed out and hit my head on the chalkboard, the thing that holds the chalk. I mean, it was really a real problem. And I had to take remedial speech in college for my stutter. So I overcame that by doing two things, speaking when I could, taking cases that were small cases that I knew were going to have to try and trying them. And exercising for me was a lot of courage, which was to step forward and reveal who I was to a jury when I was speaking to them. And that was both the most discomforting and comforting experience the first couple times I did it. And now I just love it. Can you help us understand that a little bit more, perhaps with an example in terms of how you would interact with a jury and be willing to be open and engaged in ways that they probably don't teach in in law school? I never took a course about voir dire in law school. In fact, everything I learned about practicing law was probably outside of law school. I would say to really practice law, to understand what the law is, yes, to practice law, no. And I was lucky enough when I went to law school that they had something called the Rules Governing Student Practice. I don't know if they still have them or not, but what it allowed you to do is one semester you could go work for a lawyer, and under the guidance of that lawyer, you could try a case, participate in trying a case, even though you weren't licensed. And I did that, and it was happened to be a lawyer that did criminal cases, but I did that, and that was very helpful. In terms of talking to jurors, which was your question, I always felt like if I could just have a conversation with them, I'd get a sense of who they were. So much of trial work is reading the room, like sales, kind of, but in a different way. And so I would ask jurors questions probably at the time that a lot of other attorneys would never ask. I would ask the questions that would draw out the answers that were problems. I know that some lawyers worry about, the phrase is poisoning the jury pool, and there's concern about drawing out certain answers. Was that a concern for you? No, it never was, because I think you have to know who you're dealing with. Again, overcoming objections. I always felt like if I could talk to a jury, and then I could get the jury talking among themselves with me, and we're now having a multi-conversation. I'll give you an example. I was trying a case one time, and one of the issues was, was there an enforceable verbal contract? And this was, there were businesses involved, and it had to do with an injury at work. And the defense's position was, there was nothing in writing, there was nothing that could be enforced. 
And so I got to thinking about how offensive that was because for much of my life, people would agree to bind themselves by their word. If you will do this, I will do that. And so I asked one of the jurors, have you ever heard the phrase, your word is your bond? And the juror said, yes. And I said, well, what does that mean to you? And they said, well, it means if you say you're going to do something, you do it. And I asked, does anybody else have a different definition of it? And one one says, well, I don't understand what that means when you say you're going to do something. And so I said to the juror that gave the definition, would you tell this juror what you mean by that? And so now the jurors were speaking to one another, and I was speaking with them. And my object, because that was my theme in that case, because I had to overcome that hurdle to getting to talk about the injury and therefore the damages, was that we all came away with an understanding that was acceptable to them. And I'd already won, in my mind, that point, because my theme was your word is your bond. And everybody understood what that meant. So that was one way that I talked to jurors. Another example I can give you is a case where one of the potential jurors was a lexicographer. And I have to say, when I met the guy, I didn't know what a lexicographer was. I was just about to ask you, what is a lexicographer? A lexicographer is a person who helps write dictionaries and define words. And this was an older gentleman. And when I said, you know, what's your profession? He said, I'm a lexicographer. And I thought, well, I didn't want to look like a dummy and say I didn't know, but I thought I don't know. So I said, well, you know what? Has anybody else on this jury ever heard what a lexicographer is? <laughs> and nobody raised their hand. I said, good, we're all in good company. Would you tell us what you do? And he explained what he did. And for a variety of reasons, because I look at jury as a composite, even though I like this gentleman, he didn't fit the composite I needed with the rest of the jurors. So I didn't pick him. I released him. And he waited, unbeknownst to me, out in the hall. And we, when we broke for the day, he was still sitting there. And he said, I want to know why you didn't pick me. He said, I didn't want to come to jury service and I had no interest. He said, but when you started talking about the case, I got really interested. Why didn't you pick me? And I said, well, and I sat down and talked to him. I said, here's the thing. I have to look at how the jury is going to function together. And I said, with all of your skill sets for what I needed for this jury to be able to get to the point where they could make a decision, you weren't the best choice for my client. So while I would have loved to have had you on the jury and would love to have a cup of coffee with you sometime, this is not the case for you. There's another case for you that's better. And so what it told me was that people who don't really have any interest in serving can become very interested in serving right at the voir dire stage that soon. Now, we that particular case, we did have an agreed-upon statement that was read. For those people that are lawyers will know that a, a very short five- or six-sentence statement is created, and it's read by the judge to the jury that gives a little flavor of the case. And I had made sure that all the bad parts of my case were put in that statement because I wanted to know what people were going to feel like that might be on my jury. And I wanted them to know about those bad parts before I voir dired them so that they would come out with it. That was an example. I think the last one that might be of relevance is a case you tried with me that involved a, an accident where the father had caused an accident. And I was picking a jury, and there was a very elderly gentleman sitting in seat six in the back row, top, on the left. And 
he was really old. I had asked a question about anything that would keep them from being able to sit as a juror. And he said, well, he said, I really am a Christian. I haven't ever judged anybody in my life. I don't really feel good about judging somebody. And I said, well, you know, sometimes we have responsibilities. As citizens, we have to do things we find difficult. Do you think that if the judge told you that your responsibility here was to do your best, to be honest, and try to effectuate a fair resolution, kind of like Solomon did with a baby. And he said, yeah, he said, I could try. So I left him on the jury. My co-counsel at that time did not feel that was a great idea, but he turned out to be a great juror, and he turned out to be the foreman, (laughs) and he was terrific, okay? I've had jurors that have an agenda, and I'll say, what do you think about X? And they'll say, well, I think it's terrible, and this is why we pay too much money, and they just regurgitate all of this really vile, distasteful things out. And what I do when I see a juror that does that is I start watching the rest of the jurors. I watch their body language. I'm usually fortunate enough to have somebody with me as the second seat. You did it for many years, watching the jury and seeing what their responses were. And then I ask the other jurors, but I don't ever offend the juror that, makes those comments. I say, you know, I'm really glad you brought him up. And he said, you're kind of like the canary in a mind for me. And I appreciate it. So I want to know what other people think about that because this, a lot of people feel that way. People I know that I love feel that way. And then I bring it out. So those are kind of a few things that I like to do when I'm working in voir dire with a jury. And then there's the strategic part of it that has nothing to do with interaction, but has to do with looking at what your panel looks like. I really think, and I know we've talked about this over the years, Miles, your jury has to be cohesive. This is what I wanted to come back to, is you talked about looking at a a jury, not as individuals, not as this is a one or a five or a leader or a follower, but as a composite. And I'd love to hear your explanation for folks as to why you do that and how you do that. Well... Why I do it is because they have to come to a collective decision. And it's not that I don't look at leaders and followers because I absolutely do. And some people call them sheep, which I think is a shame. But That's why I use the word followers. That's why I use the word followers. I think that's very important. I think to know where they live, what kind of work they do, have a sense of how much they earn, what their political leanings are, all of the things that everybody looks at is important. But once you've digested all of that, including age, gender, and where they come from, very important, you have to look at, are they going to be able to work together? In terms of the cohesive nature, though, the decision-making process, boy, it's hard to say, look, here's a recipe or here's a formula and do it. I just kind of take a look and say, well, this guy looks like he's going to be a leader or this woman looks like she's going to be a leader. What kind of a leader is she going to be? Because there's the leader that's strident and says, this is what I think, and tries to shove everybody in a direction. And sometimes that'll work. But if you have other thinking, quote, thoughtful people on the jury, how is that leader going to interact? Is that a person that is going to bring out other people, ask for their opinions, have some kind of organized way of looking at how they're going to do the processing when they get in the jury room? And so I'll ask questions in voir dire. You know, you, in your job, at your work, do you work with a group of people? And how do you work with a group of people? And what do you think about, is it important to you, whether, you know, your way or the highway? Some people feel that, you know, if you know something, you know it, and other people should just accept it. 
And I try to find that out. And then I look at who else I've got and I say, what's it likely that they're going to be able to work together? So that's what I do. The other thread that I wanted to go back and kind of tease out, you mentioned the way you approach neutral statements, whether it's a written neutral statement or the mini opening that has become an opportunity for folks. And I should probably ask if you have a leaning about whether you prefer a written neutral statement or a mini opening. Oh, I prefer a mini opening. Absolutely. A, if I don't know opposing counsel, by this time, most of them I know, but if I don't know opposing counsel, I want to see how they comport themselves. That's one reason I would like to see a mini opening. And I want to see what they think is important. A neutral statement, it's very static. And the court dictates a lot of how it can look. And the court reads it. So there's no interaction going on. Definitely in the opening. The other thread that I wanted to tease out was you talked about wanting to have bad facts in the neutral statement. And I presume if you're doing a mini opening, that also probably plays out there as well. You want bad facts in the mini opening as opposed to being your most persuasive self in the mini opening. Of course. Why is that? Because you're on an information gathering mission. You're trying to figure out what their objections might be. Remember I said, here's somebody that's going to be looking at a product. How do I get them to want to have that product? I find out what they don't like about it or what problems they might have with it. And then I figure out a way to explain why what they think is a problem is not really a problem. It's actually an opportunity. Okay. And so the reason I want to get out my bad facts like Mr. Smith, who got hit in a crosswalk, is a felon. Mr. Smith, who got hit in a crosswalk, was drinking at the time. Mr. Smith, after his injury, was seen riding a motorcycle when he said he couldn't. Whatever those bad facts are, I put them out so that I can find out from the jury how they feel about it. And by the way, they never remember. The jury never remembers what you say in your mini opening. It's not been my experience. They do sometimes remember what you say in your opening statement. And that's a whole other story about what you promise and how definitive you are in your opening statement. But in voir dire, voir dire to me is finding out who are the jurors that are not going to be able to act independently and objectively and follow the law. That's my goal. I want to deselect the bad jurors. So now you brought up opening statement and promises. And while you didn't use the word primacy, uh, oftentimes people use primacy and recency when they're talking about arts of persuasion. What concerns do you have in terms of making promises in opening statement and and other factors that you're working on to construct when you are telling the story? Okay, big question. Yes. Why don't I answer the promises one first? And I can give you an example. I tried a case in Santa Clara, and when the defense attorney got up, he said to the jury, you're going to see something in this case that's going to make it impossible for you to find for this plaintiff, even though he was sitting in his car at a stoplight when he was rear-ended by a bear truck. And I thought to myself, oh, dear, I am in trouble. What does he know that I don't know? And I couldn't figure out what it was. But he told him, he said, you don't have to pay attention to anything. Just wait till I get up and you're going to hear this and the case is over. And he was very definitive about it. So we tried the case. When his case came up, he decided he was going to introduce some Sub Rosa video of my client loading and unloading furniture from a truck after the accident when my client said, 
his back was really bad and he couldn't really do those things. So it turned out that the reason my client was loading and unloading from the truck was to help his daughter who had lost her house to a fire. And so we brought his daughter in and she testified, yeah, he did it. And then he was on his back for a week and a half and taking meds and muscle relaxers. And so the attorney didn't get to prove what he said he was going to prove. He'd overpromised. And I learned from that, I don't promise. I say, this is what I, I've lived with this case. I think I understand it and I know it. But like you, we're here in real time now. And we're all going to learn what you're going to have available for you to decide. Here's what I think you're going to learn. You may learn more, you may learn less. I may be correct on something or incorrect on something else. But I'm going to give you my best good faith description in the most straightforward way possible. That's all I do. I don't promise an opening statement. I do what might be considered arguing an opening statement, but I do it in a way that allows me to do it. Let me put it that way. We're all taught that opening statement is supposed to not be argument and you hear objection argumentative. How do you package information in a argumentative way where you are not smacked by the judge or objected to by the defense? To me, opening statement is extremely important. And I start preparing for it way, way in advance of doing it. And I create my opening statement not in a necessarily in a chronological fashion when I'm preparing it. I prepare it in what I call little pods. And I create, well, what's my pod about this issue and my pod about this issue? And then I park them and then I try them in different placements. And so I generally, in an opening statement, will start out by saying, this is what I perceive the evidence is going to be. So everything I tell you here is what I believe the evidence is going to be. And this is the story of what happened. Because people can relate to things like, this is the story of what happened. A lot of children's tales start out with, this is the story of what happened. Or 200 years ago, it's just kind of an intro, and it's a story. And I tell it in a, I use no notes in opening statement, although I have literally written out word for word my entire opening statement. And then once I've written it out, I then reduce it to an outline. And from there, I reduce it to bullet points. And I have all that with me to give me confidence. But then I put it down and I just do it. So I talk to people in a story fashion. I tell them that if the evidence, for example, is going to be that the defendant knew what they were doing was wrong or whatever, I will say the defendant knew what they were doing was wrong and they intended to do it. And the evidence is going to show that they really wanted to do it that way. I will drop in evidence once a show every once in a while that I find to be helpful. If I get nailed, if somebody objects and the judge says, don't do that, I never speak to opposing counsel and I never speak to the judge. I keep on going. In other words, I can't understand lawyers that turn around and say, thank you, judge. I don't do that. If the judge says, argumentative, don't do it, I'll say, as I was saying... And I'll restate the last sentence I was saying before I got to the part where I was stopped, and then I will go on. There's a lot of staging and drama in opening statement, but what's really important is that it doesn't appear that way. And what keeps that from happening, that it doesn't appear that way, is practice. And so I practice my opening statement to anyone that will listen to me. 
anybody. And afterwards, they say, what do you think? And then I modify it. I shift it if I think that it's not working. You talked about telling the story. Do you also show the story? Oh, yeah. It's so cool to be a lawyer now. It was cool to be a lawyer then when you had butcher block and flip charts and cards and little trucks and things like that. But now, I mean, it's just like a jewelry box. There's so many things that you can use. And jurors expect, I mean, everybody's seen Law and & Order, and they expect to be entertained. And so I use a lot of physical graphics. I use anatomical structures, you know, like the body. And are you talking about like 3D models that the jury can pass around? Yeah, yeah. And I like to publish. For those people who aren't old, <laughs> publish means you hand to the jurors and they pass around among themselves a piece of demonstrative evidence or a piece of evidence that it, that's admitted. And when you get into the trial, which is a whole different discussion, your expert will be off his or her chair down, standing in front of the jury, demonstrating with this model. But you're going to do it in opening. Because I view opening as an educational experience. And in any injury case, you have to teach that part of an, the anatomy that is at issue. And you have to discuss it in opening. Albeit, it can be pretty broad brush. But I like to use anatomical materials. I like to use videos. I like to use excerpts of depositions when the court will allow me to do that. And my statement to the court is always, it's going to be a lot faster just to play it than have me talk about it and try to explain the circumstances. I do PowerPoint, and I like PowerPoint, but I'm very thrifty with PowerPoint. Opening statement is about you as the lawyer establishing, or if you've already established a little bit of voir dire, reinforcing your relationship that we are going to solve this problem together. They are not going to help you solve it. They're going to make it more difficult, but that's okay because that's our job. We are going to work together and we're going to get this solved. So I like to involve them. And if I'm simply parroting something that's on the PowerPoint, A, they're not looking at me, and B, I don't know how well people can see, how fast they can read, how much they can digest information. But if I can catch their eye and they are looking at me and I'm saying, is this making sense? Which I will do periodically. Or I hope you can see this. Can you see this? A lot of times I'll say, can you hear me? Because the judge may say, speak up. I actually have somewhat of a soft voice and I have to remember to articulate. It becomes a conversation as much as it becomes an opening statement. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. So that's some of the things I do in opening. But I do use a lot of graphics. My client is a piece of demonstrative evidence to the jury. Depending upon the injury, I may have them there to introduce them at opening statement when I've already told them in voir dire that my client, because of their injury, might not be here for the whole trial. And there may be reasons I don't want my client there for the whole trial. And I then in opening will say, I've brought Mary to meet you today. Mary, would you stand up and say hello to the jurors? And she does. And then we have a break and Mary goes away if I don't want her there for whatever reason. So my client becomes a part of the evidence. But then you have to be entertaining. You have to know, I can talk this long and then they're not going to be interested anymore. i got to show them something. And that comes from teaching developmentally disabled kids. When I taught, I knew that I had to get everybody in their seat in order to start the day which you wouldn't think would be a big deal, but with developmentally disabled kids, it is. 
So I thought, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to put a chart on the wall. And they had these little gold stars you could stick on. So anybody that could get in their seat by the time the bell rang got a star. If you compiled five stars before noon, you got to pick a piece of candy out of the bowl. I mean, we're talking about small things that people can digest. If you can just get in the chair, if you can just listen to me speak for three or four minutes, there's going to be something to see. And I will usually say to a jury, I'm going to talk for a while, and then I'm going to show you some stuff that'll help you understand what I'm talking about. Because I know you don't want to hear me for a long time. And then I do. It becomes kind of interactive in a way. In some trials, the court, I don't know if they do now, I used to be able to create a binder and I said, say the judge, we'll pay for it, we'll give everybody a binder. And as evidence that's demonstrative comes in, I'd like to have, well, three will punch extra copies, 12 for all the jurors, 14 for the alternates as well. And they got to keep a binder under their seat that they could go back and look at the evidence when they wanted to. And I haven't done that for a long time. I did that in a case I did down in Central Valley, California. They like tactile experiences. I've had cases where I've asked for, not in opening statement, but in the course of the trial, go to a site visit. In a death case, I'd say, we need to get the jury out to the site. They need to see it. That's an uphill battle. There's a lot of pleading that has to go along with that and then organization to get them there. But that's something we do. To me... If the jury is involved and engaged with one another, you're going to have a vibrant jury and you're going to have collective discussion and a collective agreement. The same is true if they are engaged with you. They have to be engaged with one another and engaged with you. You'll remember the case we tried in San Mateo where we had a jury that became so involved with one another, they went out that one day and took a photo of themselves on the front steps and sent it to all the lawyers saying, you're a grand jury. That's the kind of jury I want. I want a jury that's engaged. There's a a phrase that I think I first heard from you was the point at which they go from being jurors to a jury and jurifying, that they gel and become a unit as opposed to individuals. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why probably everybody does it now, but they didn't do it way back when. And it wasn't my idea. I saw somebody else do it. I started saying to the court, we'll pay to have breakfast brought in for the jury. And it can come through as though it's being delivered by the court. So does not any party. The jury showed up on time. They had something to eat, a little coffee. They were awake when they started. They weren't grousing. They were happy. That's one way to have a cohesive jury. And then after a trial, we always would offer to take the jury out. And often they would come with us and have lunch or whatever. And we'd learn a little bit about their processing. There has to be some lighthearted moments, even in a trial that's very serious. The important thing is that the lighthearted moments do not occur during the course of the presentation of the evidence. If you ever have a case, and I had a case once, where my client was punched in the nose by a coworker. And the defense lawyer was very flamboyant. And he got up in the course of doing the 776 on my client, the punchy. And he was mocking her a little bit by saying, well, how did he punch you? Did he punch you like this? And he was making a buffoonery of it. And a couple people on the jury laughed. And I knew I was in trouble. I knew I was in trouble. So, yes, lighthearted, not during the discussion of the evidence, before at lunchtime, afterward, but not during the case. Lawyers who crack jokes to jurors, in my opinion, do not help their client. 
I don't do it. So, But it's a matter of personal preference. There's some people that can. All of what you've talked about in terms of putting on the case sounds like a lot of work, a lot of time goes in. And one of the things I remember about practicing with you is the sense that um, the other side could possibly be smarter than us, <laughs> but they're never going to outwork us. Yeah, no. That then dovetails into a question about the challenges of being on top of your game in trial, which sometimes means huge numbers of hours in terms of outworking the other side, and then the balance of self-care. Have you learned, what would you share with younger lawyers about those challenges of having to outwork the other side to get the outcome that you want, and then also making sure that one does not get burned out as a result? Well, that's the core, really, isn't it? You have to be on the planet to be in the planet. I mean, if you're not here, you can't do good work. I think I would set the stage this way. This is what it was like to try cases before I learned that it wasn't the best way to try them. And I would say the result in the case is the same, regardless of which way I did it, but the impact on me was very different depending upon which way I did it. So when I initially tried cases, and for many, many years, I viewed it as something like this. I am in a battle with somebody who's smarter than me and stronger than me and bigger than me, and they may not know it yet, but I'm terrified, and I don't want to lose no matter what. So I have to work harder, longer. I have to anticipate what they might do. I have to be prepared to have a different direction if they do what they think they might do and if they do something different. And I can never let them know that I am feeling very incomplete and incapable. And so that meant I started earlier, worked longer, and i in trial, even today. But then when I was in trial, I worked 24-7. I never stayed at home. I always went to a, a hotel where I rented two rooms. One room was a war room. I set up everything there. And I worked from dawn to dusk, and then from dusk to dawn. Well, beyond dusk, yes. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, the walls were covered with stickums about, and we'd move the stickums depending upon which direction we were going to go in a case. And I would show up in the morning, essentially dead inside, because I was so tired, and then I'd make it through the day and try the case. And then rinse and repeat. That's what you would do. And when the case was over and it went to the jury, I would literally fall asleep at counsel table with my head on the table. And I'd wake up when the bailiff came in with a question or a verdict. That was it. And then when the case was over, I was exhausted and I usually got sick. That's what happened. And it became my belief that that's the only way I could win, was to do that. And so I did it for decades. Talk about not recognizing what insanity is. That was me. And then I got really sick and I had to have heart surgery. And the doctor said to me, what are you doing? And I tell him what I do. And he said, we have to stop doing it that way because if you don't, it'll kill you. And I hope anybody listening to this does this about 20 years before I did. You should be doing this analysis for yourself in your 30s and your 40s. And that analysis is what is self-care? Because it's not a term that a lot of people are familiar with. And I actually, I am. And I've concluded that self-care in law for a lawyer, is adhering to the belief that you can and will control the result with hard work and will 
versus just having a healthy connection to the outcome, whatever it's going to be. I have a sticker on my fridge that says, the only control you have in life is how you respond to the ride. And once I stopped worrying about losing, which was an anathema to me, and I started thinking about how can I win by still having a life and enjoying what I'm doing so it's not a slog, I became lighter as a lawyer. I became more light in my approach at trial. I got better verdicts. I got bigger verdicts. So there's a couple things that I did. One is I decided I need to have some balance outside of law. And I'd always like horses, so I got into horses. And then when I wasn't able to be into horses anymore, I got into photography or other things that I enjoyed. I tried to spend some of my time with people outside of law, which when you're married to a lawyer and every human being you know is a lawyer and every organization you belong to is full of lawyers, is kind of hard to do. But I did by community activities, by people involved with the recreational things I liked, like equestrian activities or photography activities. I decided to stop identifying my opposing counsel in my mind as my enemy. That was hard. There is, in the world of family law, something that is known as the collaborative option of family law, where the idea is it's not necessarily adversarial. You're working together to get an outcome. And I know that in the civil world, there have been some people who have talked, not necessarily that one is collaborating with the other side, but if you think of them as your learning partner to help get to justice, you can approach them in a way that is, they may still be combative, but it has less impact on your soul. That's very true. That's very true. I am by nature basically a nice person. I don't like conflict. I want everybody to be happy. My God, I'm a Libra. I want everybody to be happy, okay? (laughs) And so I decided I had to be who I was. And if I was dealing with jerks, I recognize I was dealing with jerks, but that shouldn't impact who I was and how I was going to treat them. It was less important to me that I overpower them and more important to me that I communicated who I was, that I didn't expect anything in return from them. I didn't expect, I'm nice to you, so you're going to be nice to me. And if you're not nice to me, I'm going to be hurt. Instead, I said, I'm going to be nice to you when I can. And if you're not nice to me, I will recognize that that's not the best benefit of my client. And I will not extend the same courtesy I may have extended to you before, not because I don't like you personally, but because not the benefit of my client. And that sounds like there's no distinction, but there's a huge distinction because when you personally dislike somebody for who they are as opposed to what they do, you're into judgment that clouds your ability to be effective in my mind because it's a form of anger. And that's pretty subtle, but for me, it was real important. I don't know if that answers your question. I think it does. The follow-up question that I might have as we talk about this area is, We've talked a little bit about the background that you came from, that it was not one of abundance. And there are people who come from a a scarcity mindset, and it is very challenging to overcome that scarcity mindset. And yet at the same time, when you work from an abundance mindset, the outcomes, as you've described, your verdicts have gotten better, even though your attitude has shifted. Do you feel that there's any growth that you've done to shift from those two positions that have brought you to where you are? Well, really the most significant thing is, back to those kids I taught, some people are damaged. There are defense lawyers I deal with that are so magnificent. 
I really love them. They've become friends. I've tried cases against them. And then there's defense lawyers that are total jerks and are always going to be jerks. But they're damaged. And I look at them more of like, I'm sorry that you're the way you are. You cannot be in my way to get to my goal. You are not going to be significant to me in any manner except as your behavior affects my ability to go forward on my case. And in that way, I'm much more objective. It's kind of like when the computer doesn't work. My husband is just hysterical. Anything mechanical that doesn't work, (laughs) he'll say to me, the remote doesn't work. What a piece of shit. Or the computer doesn't work. What a piece of shit. And I say, John, it's an inanimate object. It doesn't have a personality. I tend to view people that are very difficult. And I've dealt with defense lawyers in cases who have been drunk who have been very nasty, who have hidden evidence, so on and so forth, but have also dealt with some really great ones. And my attitude is, you guys, if you're not on the same boat with me and trying to get information to the jury, you're just in my way, and I'm not going to give you very much weight or attention. And I go back to why I'm there. And that's, by the way, the biggest thing for me. You haven't asked, but with the jury, my most important role is to get them the information they need to make the decision I want them to come to. That is my role. There is nothing more important than that. So if that means I have to look stupid or I have to put up with somebody I don't want to deal with, it doesn't matter to me. My goal is you're getting the information and then I get to say to you in closing, I am so happy to hand this over to you because I've been living with this and it's important and now you get to make the decision that allows everybody else to move on or whatever I'm going to say to them. The phrase masters in trial came up and I know that you were teaching a program yesterday. I also know that a lot of what you've done more recently has been involved in leadership in the American Board of Trial Advocates and in the spreading of civility and ethics and the mastery of information for younger lawyers. Can you talk a little bit about why that has become a passion for you and and its significance in terms of the next generation of lawyers? Well, I mean, all you have to do is turn on the TV, really. The rule of law is a beautiful thing, and it's what keeps us from killing each other more than we already do. If people can't speak to one another without stigmatizing the other, there's never going to be a communication that allows for a resolution. And the beauty of juries is that There is communication, there is an opportunity to be heard, there's an opportunity to discuss aggressively, but in the end you come together with a collective, this is what we're going to do. It is much harder to do that if you're not civil. The result is much better when you are civil because everyone feels like they have been heard. The hardest thing to do for me as a lawyer is to be quiet and listen to what somebody else has to say. Civility is what keeps us from being animals. It keeps us from harming one another. It elevates us to the point where we can do good. It's more effective than the other way. So why wouldn't you be civil? What makes people be uncivil? Fear makes people be uncivil. Somebody who's unprepared, a form of fear, makes them uncivil. Someone who's afraid that they can't win with what they've got in their hand to show makes them uncivil. It makes them cheat. It makes them try to obfuscate. And this all goes to sometimes 
you have what you have and you can only do what you can do. When you're a person that believes, I have to win. If I don't win, it's bad. That was me. I got to win no matter what. I'll do anything. I'll cut off my finger. If that'll make me win, I'll do it. And the problem is you're losing when you're winning. And so you kind of deal with the hand you got and you move forward. And you accept when you lose. There are people that can't accept what they lose. I've watched some really talented lawyers spiral down into alcoholism because they couldn't handle losing. That's part of it. So for me, civil is being able to sit down with a person who has a completely opposite opinion that I have. And instead of trying to shout them down or persuade them down, lean back and say, tell me why you feel like that. I'm happy to listen to you why you feel like that. Would you be willing for me to tell you what I think? And let's see, is there something in between we can agree on? And maybe the only thing we can agree on is that we both like coffee, but it's a start. When you can't agree on anything, when you can't stand somebody and won't speak to them, it's not advantaging yourself. I'm ashamed to say there are a few people in the universe that I won't speak to, and I'm working on that. You know, you may get a call in the not-too-distant future, but I think that it elevates you, civility. It allows democracy to flourish. It doesn't drown it. So to me, civility is a big thing. And ABOTA is an organization that truly believes in civility. One of the things they've done is they've gotten the promise of civility oath in most of the courts in all of the states in the United States. And it basically says, I will be civil and I will be ethical. And I understand there will be consequences if I'm not. But you have to lead by example and you have to keep thinking it's okay. I'm going to be civil. They're not. That's okay. It's not about them. It's about me. Do what I can this day. This is the terrain I have for today. I'm going to work on it. And so civility is an important thing. And it makes you a better lawyer. It makes it more comfortable for the people you're around. I will tell you what really aggravates the hell out of a jury is two lawyers being petty and fighting with one another that they don't like it. It's not something that either side gets advantaged by doing. And I think one of the most beautiful things that you learned to do when I was working with you is you were very generous with the other side. If one of their exhibits didn't work, you'd say, oh, here, do you want to use this? Let me put it up for you on the Elmo. We had Elmos back in the day, yeah. Those kinds of things, the jury sees that. They say, you know, well, that lawyer doesn't have it. Because they already believe we all have agendas. And anything you do that reinforces their belief that you have agenda, guess what? Makes them suspicious of you. Makes them not trust you. So civility makes sense. It gives you a better opportunity to be successful than not. What is it, the old thing, you get more flies with honey? So there you go, civility. You talked earlier about being a Libra and wanting everyone to get along and that conflict is not really your thing. Correct. Except on cross. <laughs> Except on cross. Well, Except on cross. Expand on that. <laughs> Although oh. I will say having sat in on many trials with you. And I can't remember which judge it was. There was a judge who made some comment about how that was the kindest cross I've seen and most effective. And that the direct was not cross, but there was some heat in the cross. And I'm thinking of the forklift case down in Norwalk. Oh my God. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Jim was the giant forklift he wasn't a forklift guy he was delivering goods to a yeah. warehouse and he forklift ran over his toes correct and he was just this big 
guy that wore overalls, you know, is really a nice guy. And I put him on the stand and I said, you know, would you tell the jury your name? And he said, I said, would you tell the jury what you do? Well, I'm a truck driver. I said, well, will you tell the jury how you got into driving trucks, how you got your first trucking job? He says, oh, well, I lied. And I mean, I was stopped in my tracks. And all I could think of to say was what first came to my mind. I said, Jim, they're going to be questioning you. You're killing me here. Wait till they question you. I said, but now that you brought it up, what do you mean you lied? Because what do you do? Right. You accept that the universe probably intended that to happen. And, and then he told the story that he really wanted the job so bad that he told him he had more experience than he did. And he, you know, he tried really hard to do a good job. And the jury just adored him, just adored him. So that's the kind of thing that inadvertently can happen. I remember Jim well. And I think that that is a good example of being in the moment, which is, I think, a challenge for a lot of us. We prepare our outlines. We're scripted in certain respects. We have our moves and our counter moves and everything ready to go. But the difference between the junior trialer, the scripts, and the master like you is that ability to shift and pivot and be in the moment. Well, I don't think anybody is a master all the time. I think you have moments where an opportunity presents itself and you say, oh, I'm going to take advantage of that. In that moment, you're brilliant and it's really fun to remember those. But for most of the time, you're just all, we're all just plodding along. But yeah, for me, and I find this more in cross than in direct because direct is a much more controlled examination, of course, is that if you're calling, uh, if you're going second in cross, say it's somebody else's expert, as opposed to calling somebody the 776, I pay a lot of attention to what happened on the direct of that expert, for example. And I may decide not to do the cross I was going to do because what was brought on a direct was so concerning. And I know, because I know my evidence in my case really well, that I can get them on it. And so yesterday was an example. Expert on direct said they had done testing of the patient. This was a psychiatrist. Well, I administered MMPI testing. Well, we know that psychiatrists don't do that very generally. And I knew in the report they had said another guy did the testing. I had planned to do something else. I got up and I said, let's start out right away and talk about truth. Truth's important. Ask all the questions they got to answer. Yes, yes. I said, now you said that you did this testing. And they said, yes, I did. And I said, you've said that under oath here. Yes. And you want the jury to believe that, correct? Yes. And I said, but that's not true. You're lying, right? Everybody gets freaked out as soon as you say something like that. Judge sits up. The jury sits up. They're now paying attention. So you've already highlighted this is going to be a big deal. I said, you know what? Put up the report. Let's look at your report. This is your report. You wrote it. See this? This were your words. John Smith administered the MMPI test. And you wrote that. And by the way, is your name signed down there, right? So, yeah. Okay. Set that aside. And then I went back to my exam. I said, I just wanted to clear that up at the outset. Because now I want to talk about how you came to be here. In other words, why you're testifying. Because you used to treat this patient as a psychiatrist. And now you're here today and you're being paid by the defendant to be a forensic expert for them. And you're talking about your treatment with her, with them. Did you ever get her consent to do that? And that person was on their heels the entire time that exam went on because I started out with letting them know this is going to be painful and you can either come along with me. And I was nice about it. I wasn't nasty. But the more they lied, the more I pushed. And so 
the trick with cross for me personally, I can't speak for anybody else, is not to begin to enjoy it too much. I realize in myself, I go, oh, you're not being a very nice person right now. There's a danger in getting too personal in cross or in, in anything in law because what happens is you're no longer part of that jury. This is you. And they may not have the same feeling you have about this person being a bad person. That happened in a case way back when that I actually tried with Bill. And we knew that the first witness for the defendant, which we were calling under 776 as a hostile witness, was a bad guy. And Bill started examining him out of the box and just treating him terrible because he knew he was a jerk, but the jury didn't. The jury didn't yet know the guy was a jerk. We needed to wait until the evidence developed and this person revealed who they were, and then we could become more aggressive. So that was the reason why I started with the lie first, because it allowed me to be more aggressive, because the jury already knew she was a liar. And I then brought them along with me. So that's not any great skill set. That's really reading a room and taking an opportunity when it arises. But in cross, you could talk about cross forever, but all of the classic stuff, I don't ask questions that aren't short, that are not likely to admit a yes or anything other than a yes or no. When somebody starts to explain, I put my hand up and I say, move to strike. I didn't ask that question. I do that a lot because I don't want them to control the cross. I want to control the cross. We've talked quite a bit about the career that you've had thus far. What have you learned along the way? Oh, a lot. And I'm still learning. I'm still learning. One of the joys of the practice of law is you're always learning. You know, Rather than talking about it with specifics, I want to talk about it in generalities. Please. Now when I look back on my practice, which I hope is still vital and I enjoy, I learned that I actually went through several stages as an attorney. There was the initial stage. When I got out of law school, I had my ticket, I opened my office, and I thought, I've arrived, I'm a lawyer now, you know. And I was at a stage where I didn't know what I didn't know. And I made a lot of mistakes because I didn't even realize how ignorant I was. So that was stage one. Stage two was I learned some things and that was the stage where I knew what I didn't know, but I wondered if others recognized I didn't and I tried to hide it. And this came directly on the heels of when I discovered I didn't know what I didn't know. And I learned at that stage that the way I survived was to be prepared, work harder than the other person. This has always been a mantra for me. Ask the advice of three people you have respect for on things you have to make decisions about and you're not sure, and then make your own choice and not to post-judge myself too much because I've made my best effort. Third stage was perhaps the most dangerous, and that was the stage where I knew what I knew and I was getting complacent. And the danger of that was a decision, for example, to decide I could take the deposition of an opposing expert by reading his report an hour before I was going to examine him in deposition. And doing things where I didn't think myself through, like asking for an agreement from opposing counsel who was a bit of a challenge and failing to follow up and getting a written confirmation. So that's that complacency. That was problematic. And then the last stage is where I am probably now. When you know what you know, I know what I know. I know that others know that I know what I'm doing. 
but I don't always take the opportunity I can to learn when the opportunity presents itself. And what happens in that situation is whatever your style is becomes locked in. And it's then just becomes the same old thing. And as a lawyer, you're going to encounter the same lawyers on more than one occasion. If they already know what your deal is and the way you try a case and you don't look at each case fresh, you're going to have problems. So what helped me in this existing stage is to become a mentor and in some ways to become a mentee by people in other professions and stuff. So I don't know if that's what I've learned along the way, but that's what I learned as I continued to work as a lawyer. And when you say become a mentee and learn from others, can you help us understand a little bit what you mean by that? I taught with a good friend, Rich Schoenberger, over at UC Berkeley. We taught first-year law school students. And they were learning trial practice and watching them develop their own themes and seeing them exhibit creativity. I learned things. I was mentoring them, but in watching them, what I learned was their vitality and their energy and their creativity, and they were doing things that I would never have thought to do. It's just a different way of looking at things. This MIT that I did yesterday, I watched the defense side who had a rough go because the case facts weren't as helpful to them, and I watched the creativity that they exhibited and things that I would never have considered doing, and I saw parts that I really liked and saw parts that I would not personally choose to do. So that's within the law. Then there's the learning outside the law. And learning about human behavior is the most important thing that you can do as a lawyer and understanding how people respond to certain things. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I went to see the Starlight Orchestra with a girlfriend of mine, and it was a bunch of old people dancing to old-time music, watching them interact with each other, and what they felt was valuable and what made them happy gave me some insight to what a juror of that age might find significant to them, might find worthwhile to them. If I was going to use an example in talking to somebody that age, I now have had that experience seeing them socialize with one another. So everything is a potential learning experience. If you stay within the law to get it, if you try to copy another lawyer, it's not a bad idea. It's just not the best idea. So outside the law experiences are going to impact on inside the law experiences as well. So that's kind of what I mean. Helpful. I don't know. Hope so. (laughs) Going back to talking a bit about the tools that are available now for trying cases, and you talked about how amazing all the various things are. Would you agree that trying cases now is different than when you first started? Oh, yeah. In terms of a solo lawyer going into a courtroom and trying a case by themselves, do you recommend that or do you recommend a different approach now? I think it depends on the case, but on whole, I think it would be extremely difficult to try a case of any substance as as a sole practitioner. The cost to do it, the time involved, the IT involved, meaning the the technology involved, uh, the number of lawyers that are going to be on the other side. I don't think I've seen a case in the last... 10 years where there's been a single lawyer at counsel table. I've done it, and I did it for the first 10 years or so of my practice. And it was okay, but there was nobody to bounce things off of. You were responsible for everything. There's only so many things you can do. 
you expand your capacity to prove your case when you have more people involved. And you don't have to have another lawyer involved. You know, some people like to work alone. If that's not something that appeals to you, if you can find someone in your office or you can find someone in your life that's willing to come and sit and take notes, and you know about that because you took daily trial notes for years, organize materials, create binders, get the IT arranged, all of those things, you, you really, for me personally, even with my years of experience, I couldn't try a case without that kind of assistance. And, you know, starting early and often is a great idea if you think your case is going to go to trial. If you haven't got your case pretty well shaped up at least 90 days before trial, I mean, you can delay them in limines and trial briefs and that to a little bit later, but if, if you haven't gathered all your evidence, excluding expert stuff, you're probably going to be in trouble. So, yeah, I think you need to have assistance. One the other thing that I think most people have probably had this experience at some point in their career, you have those cases where you're like, oh, this one's going to settle. There's no way they wouldn't pay on this one. And that oftentimes is the one that tries in terms of, of not being prepared. Yeah. It's uh, pretty amazing how stupid people can be sometimes. And part of that feeling that this case is going to settle, in retrospect, I always realize I didn't understand how they saw the case. It's kind of like when my horse would misbehave, I never would blame the horse. So the horse was just being a horse. It's me. It's my response. And I have had that happen. You say, well, it's just a case of clear liability. It's just an issue of damages. Well, somebody else doesn't see it that way. Or their idea of what they stipulated to is different than your idea of what they've stipulated to, even when the language says what it says. And there's always a battle and always a fight that can arise that you didn't expect. So... You have to be prepared all the time. One of the real challenges is when you take a case and you think you've got case A. And very shortly after you take case A, but long enough to have spent some money and many, many hours of work, you realize you really have case B and you don't like case B so much. And that's because your client has come to you when they first arrive and they've told you a story that sounds really good. And the reason it sounds really good is they've told it to three or four other lawyers before you and they've got it tuned up real good. And it's not until later on that you realize that, well, everything your client said isn't really exactly what it is. And you have to make a choice at that point, whether you're going to try to adapt and it's worthwhile to keep the case or not keep it. And it's very hard for certain lawyers. It was hard for me to, quote, fire a client. But I've learned that there are cases that are so different than the case you thought you had that you know what the risks and benefits are of continuing it, and you know you're not going to have a happy client if you pursue it. And in those cases, I say, this is not a case for me. This is a case for somebody else. So recognizing a dead horse at the earliest opportunity is really a good idea. We have chatted quite a bit. I feel like we have probably just barely scratched the surface in terms of topics to cover in light of all of the accomplishments and all of the work that you have put in throughout your career. That said, as we kind of bring this to a close for today, is there anything else that you would like to bring forward? I have two things I want to talk about. One is the difference between the pros and cons of practicing law. For me, practicing law gave me a sense of place and purpose. It was stimulating intellectually. I was learning all the time. I love the fun of the battle. I love winning. Oh my God, I love winning so much. I can't tell you how many times, this is when I used to try cases by myself, 
and the old courthouse was open down in San Francisco, which is now City Hall, I'd get out in the afternoon, it'd be hot. In the middle of summer, there's no air conditioning in there. I'd be walking down the hall just high-fiving myself. I did it. I did it. I was so excited about it. I love that. I love being able to help people and leave a mark. And, you know, I really like being told I was good. Even when, like, inside I knew I probably wasn't. But they didn't know that. So that was the part I really loved. The cons parts of it for me were that it was so challenging. It is, was, and is, and remains so challenging every day. And for a perfectionist like I am, with a mildly obsessive compulsive leaning, I had picked a profession that had turned into a, an obsession. And it has been an obsession. I have missed many holidays and many vacations because I've been working on a case. And that isolated me from my family and my friends when I was buckling down to try a case. And then there's the weight of being responsible for carrying the welfare of another person on your shoulders. And they're looking to you to save them from this horrible situation they have found themselves in. But I think the biggest con for me is recognizing that one day I'm going to have to step away from it, and I really don't want to. You know, I enjoy it so much. So there's one thing I wanted to say. The other thing I want to say is the best part of practicing law for me is the people that have become part of my life, you know, you, of course, and everybody I've worked with. I've been so fortunate. I, I have a legal writer I've worked with for over 20 years. I, I've had people that have come and gone to, in the practice that have become lifelong friends at least two have become lawyers that weren't going to be lawyers when they first started working for me. That is such a joyful thing because I don't have children. So that is my family, the people that I work with. And I have been just amazingly blessed by it. And I couldn't be more grateful for that. So that's the very best part of practicing law. And you're a big part of it, my friend. You are. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been a real honor spending the time that I did and, and getting the learning that I got from you over the years. Like they'd said in that movie, Ghost, ditto. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for listening today. Please email us at podcast at cooperstatlaw with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions on ways that you've approached trials and the trials of life. Like what you heard? Share us with a colleague and leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. To all of you doing justice out there, happy hunting.